The epistle lesson is the same as our sermon text. Let me read the latter portion of Revelation 14. John writes, I looked and behold a white cloud, and sitting on the cloud was one like a son of man, having a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. And another angel came out from the temple, crying out with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, because the hour to reap has come, because the harvest of the earth is dry. And he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle over the land, and the land was reaped. And another angel came out from the temple, which is in heaven. And he also had a sharp sickle. And another angel, the one who has power over fire, came out from the altar. And he called with a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, saying, Put in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the land, because her grapes are ripe. And the angel swung his sickle on the land and gathered the clusters from the vine of the land and threw them into the great winepress of the wrath of God. And the winepress was trodden outside the city, and blood it came out from the winepress, up to the horses' bridles for a distance of two hundred miles. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and marvelous, seven angels who had seven plagues, which are the last, because in them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw, as it were, a sea of glass mixed with fire, and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, holding harps of God. And they sang the song of Moses, the bondservant of God, and the song of the Lamb. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is the Son of Man who comes to harvest and sends out his angels to gather into the harvest. We pray that with that confidence, with that hope, you would make us faithful witnesses to our Lord Jesus, keeping the commandments of God and following the Lamb wherever he leads us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Revelation 14 has a clear, repetitive structure to it. First, we see a lamb standing, surrounded by 144,000, standing on Mount Zion. Then after we see that scene, we see a series of three angels who make announcements. They fly across the, uh, fly in mid-heaven, across the face of the firmament, and they make announcements to those who are on the earth. And after those three angels, the cycle starts again, and we see not the lamb, but a son of man, not on Mount Zion, but on a cloud, not standing, but sitting, but the same person. The Lamb is Jesus. The Son of Man who sits on the cloud, who comes to harvest, is Jesus. And after Jesus reappears in the middle of the chapter, then there are three more angels who do other things. One angel exhorts the Son of Man to begin the harvest. Another angel comes out with a sickle to go join in with the harvest. And then the third angel goes out and tells the second angel to harvest the grapes. Jesus, three angels. Jesus, three angels. Lamb, three angels making announcements. Lamb, three angels participating in the harvest. And the chapter as a whole hangs together at the beginning and the end. At the beginning we see the 144,000 who are gathered around the Lamb, and they hear from heaven the sound of music, the sound of harpists harping on their harps, and the sound of the song of heaven penetrating down to the Mount Zion, and they learn a new song. And then at the end of the chapter, actually going into chapter 15, we see the saints who have been rescued from the beasts, who have not, who have been come out victorious from the beasts and from the number of the beasts and from the image of the beast. And they're now standing above the firmament. And they're no longer just hearing the music from heaven. 
but they now are holding harps, and they themselves have joined in with the chorus of heaven. They become part of the heavenly choir, singing the song of Moses and song of the Lamb. Jesus, three angels. Jesus, three angels. Music at the beginning and the end. All very neat and tidy. But then at the center of the chapter, we have two verses that stand out from that pattern, that don't seem to fit into the pattern. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their, de- for their deeds will, will follow them. We're not sure if verse 12 is being spoken by one of the angels. Where does that come from? Who's speaking? Is John speaking? And he hears a voice from heaven, and the voice from heaven tells him to write a blessing. But that doesn't fit into this easy pattern. This stands out, and this, these verses contain the practical import of this passage. The, whole, the practical import of this series of visions of Jesus and three angels, Jesus and three angels, the conclusion that we should draw is, here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. This is encouragement to saints who are under pressure. This is encouragement to saints who are in the midst of trials. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. Not only do those words stand out from the rest of the chapter, but that blessing is an odd blessing in the context of the rest of Scripture. God first gave a blessing at the beginning of the world. He created things that were going to be fruitful and multiply and be vital and fertile, and He blessed them, and He said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And He blessed humanity and said, be fruitful and multiply, subdue the earth, take dominion over it, and fill it. Blessing is about giving the energy and the potency for life and fertility and fruitfulness. You don't very often find in the Old Testament a blessing pronounced on the dead. Precious in the sight of the Lord are the deaths of His godly ones, the psalm says. That's about as close as you come. But here, blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. There's a new blessing given to those who now die in the Lord. There's a blessing of fruitfulness and fertility and continued vitality and vibrancy in death that's new. And that's part of encouragement to the saints. To understand those two verses which include, which contain the practical import of this passage, we have to understand how this chapter fits into the rest of Revelation. Revelation is, among many other things, a call to martyrdom. It's a prophecy concerning the fate of martyrs and the witness of the martyrs and the effects that the martyrs have and the effect that martyr blood has on the world in which they witness. A martyr is a witness. The Greek word martyr simply means witness. Whenever you read the word witness in the book of John or elsewhere in the New Testament, you're looking at the English translation of the Greek word martyr, some form of the word martyr. Testimony is another word that means martyrdom. Martyrdom doesn't necessarily involve death in the original sense, but in the book of Revelation, martyrs, witnesses, witness in situations where there's pressure on them not to witness, where there are threats to those who continue to witness. And so those who are witnessing to Jesus, following the commandments of God and doing the, doing the work of the Lamb and following the Lamb wherever He goes, they become witnesses not only in the sense of speaking God's Word and uh, being witnesses in their lives, they are witnesses in their death. 
They don't love life even to death. In the book of Revelation, the word martyr, which originally simply means witness, begins to take on the sense that it has in our vocabulary, a witness who is faithful even to death. And in Revelation, that begins with the fifth seal at the beginning of the book. When the Lamb opens the fifth seal, that unveils a vision of saints, the souls of saints that are under the altar. These are the saints who have been martyred throughout the ages. And they're crying out for vengeance. They want God to judge. They want to be vindicated. Their blood is crying out like the blood of Abel. They've been killed. Their blood has been shed on the earth. And those who killed them have suffered no harm. God God hasn't judged. God hasn't corrected that. They go to their deaths witnessing faithfully, and God hasn't vindicated them and proven them to be in the right. He doesn't, hasn't done anything in response to that martyr blood. So century after century, more and more martyrs are made and their blood is poured out, their souls are poured out at the base of the altar, crying out, clamoring for God to take vengeance, and He has not. And the answer in the fifth seal is not, okay, it's time. The answer in the fifth seal is not quite yet. It's not quite yet time to avenge the blood of the saints, to avenge the martyrs, and to judge their enemies. Instead, the Lord gives two responses to those martyrs. The first is to give each of them a white robe. White robes are the robes of heaven, the white robe that I'm not wearing today. Uh, White robes are the robes of heaven. Uh, When John first goes into heaven, he sees people wearing white robes, and the martyrs want to be in that company. They want to be among the white-robed saints and angels in heaven. They want to be part of that choir and part of that liturgy, but they're not. They're at the base of the altar, but they're given the white robes. They're being prepared to go into the heavenly liturgy, to be inducted into the heavenly choir. That robe is a pledge that their blood will be vindicated, that the Lord will judge their enemies, and He will act on their behalf. But then the other part of the response is this. The Lord says it's not yet time to judge and to vindicate because more martyrs have to be made. More blood has to be shed. The full cup of the martyr's blood hasn't been filled. It hasn't been filled to its brim. And it has to be before God judges. And that message from chapter uh, 6 on throughout Revelation rings all the way through that. It's hovering over Revelation. And the rest of Revelation is, in a sense, the fulfillment of that promise. The martyrs are going to be vindicated. Martyr blood is not going to cry out forever. God will judge but only after more martyrs are made. And chapter 14 is the fulfillment of that promise. The 144,000 who are described here as first fruits to God and to the Lamb, this 144,000 at the beginning of chapter 14, that's the response to the martyrs' cries. God says more martyrs, and now the more martyrs have come. This, these are the last of the martyrs, the first fruits of a new company of martyrs, the first fruits of the new covenant martyrs, but also the completion of the martyrs of the Old Covenant. They're marked on the forehead with the name of God, the name of the Father, and the name of the Lamb. They're priests. Like the high priest, they wear the name of God on their forehead. And they're getting prepared to offer sacrifice. It's a liturgical company with the Lamb standing as high priests in their midst. And the 144,000 also priests who are getting ready to worship God with their lives. The sacrifice they're going to offer is the same sacrifice that Jesus offered when he played the role of priest. Jesus, of course, was both priest and sacrificial victim. And in him, the 144,000 play that same 
double roll. They're marked on the forehead as priests, but the offering that they're going to make is not the offering of an animal. They're certainly not going to sacrifice other people. They're not going to point away from themselves and scapegoat other people. They're going to offer themselves as sacrifices. They're learning the song of Moses and of the Lamb. They're learning the song of heaven so that they can be prepared for that time when they offer themselves as living sacrifices. This chapter is the answer to the cry of the martyrs. These are the last martyrs that are going to be made. These are the last martyrs of the Old Covenant. And then God will judge. And the harlot city that has been drinking the blood of the saints, the blood of the martyrs, for century after century, without being judged, finally, will be judged. It's in that situation that we have these words. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. That's why they need the encouragement. That's why they need the assurance. They need to persevere because they're under deadly threat. They're being prepared to offer themselves as priests and sacrifices to God. Living sacrifices that become dying sacrifices. Now the messages of the three angels and the actions of the other three angels give that assurance and give that encouragement. Here is the perseverance of the saints. The messages of the first three angels encourage the saints to persevere. The actions of the second three angels, the harvest angels, encourage the saints to persevere. What are these messages? What is the harvest about? The first angel that flies across midheaven is said to be preaching a gospel, preaching good news. And the other angels who fly across midheaven and follow him I think we can infer, are also preaching good news. This doesn't sound like good news. The first angel just gives commands. Fear God. Glorify Him. Worship Him. The second angel announces the fall of Babylon. And the third angel talks about fire and brimstone and smoke and torment that goes on forever and ever. How is this good news? Well, it's good news for the saints because those who are being judged... The city that's falling, that's been drinking their blood, is the, is the city that's been drinking their blood. Those who are going into the fire and brimstone and their smoke rising forever and ever are the worshipers of the beasts. You see, in the previous chapter, the beast, the two beasts, have been gaining the victory over the saints. They've been killing the saints. They're winning. That's not good news. But it's good news when God comes and changes the dynamics of the game and takes up the side of his saints so that the saints win and not the beasts and the wicked. There's only good news if God comes to judge, if God comes to vindicate the martyrs. Losing is not, a, is not good news. Losing to the beasts is not good news. It's only good news when God comes to judge. And those who worship God, who fear Him, who glorify Him, are in the company of those who are going to be delivered. When God comes to judge Babylon, and when God comes to put all those who worship the beast into fire and brimstone, those who are worshiping God, wearing His name on their foreheads, and persevering, are going to be saved. This is an assurance in the midst of difficulties and challenges and trials, and especially the challenge and trial of persecution. How can we sustain our faith in the midst of that? When it looks like the bad guys are winning, the beasts are winning, how can we go on? 
Here is the perseverance of the saints. Here is an encouragement of the saints. Fallen. Fallen is Babylon. And those who worship the beast and receive his mark will end up in fire and brimstone with their smoke rising forever and ever. That is stern news, but it is good news for the saints because God is acting on behalf of them, on our behalf, taking our side and punishing and uh, uh, judging our enemies. That's part of the assurance that this passage gives. In the midst of persecution and opposition, God will not turn His back. He may take for, it may seem like He takes forever to intervene. It seems like He takes century after century to do something about the blood of the saints. But He acts. He vindicates. He judges. Babylon falls. And those who worship the beast end up in fire and brimstone. The other assurance that this passage gives is the assurance that it's harvest time. That's what the second set of three angels is about. The first set of three angels announce the fall of the enemies of the saints. The second three angels are talking about a harvest. Harvest is a common biblical image for an end, as we heard in the Gospel reading today. The harvest is the end of the age. And the whole process of an agricultural year becomes an image in Scripture of uh, beginnings and middles and ends. You plant something. You begin something. You water it and nurture it and weed it, take out the weeds. You try to encourage it to grow and to mature. And then eventually you hope to reap a harvest. You start a family. You have kids. You plant and water. You care for them. And you hope to reap a harvest in their future faithfulness. You start a business. You plant the business. You water it and encourage it. And you hope that it will grow to maturity so that you can reap a harvest of profit and service to your customers. You plant a church. And the pastors and elders and leaders and all the saints water and weed and are engaged in the process of turning the church into a flourishing garden. And you hope that you will someday reap the harvest. Harvest is a natural image of an end. And here the harvest is the harvest of the saints. The last harvest, the latter part of this passage is often understood as a harvest not of the saints but of the enemies of God. But I think that's a misreading of the passage. The passage begins by talking about the 144,000 as the first fruits. And then it ends with a harvest scene. You begin with first fruits and you end with harvest. You assume that the chapter is connected. The harvest is the harvest of the 144,000. They're the ones that are going to be gathered up from the earth by the Son of Man and by the angel with the sickle. They're the ones that are going to be gathered up uh, to heaven. This is the perseverance of the saints, that harvest time has come. In the midst of persecution and in the midst of opposition, as the saints are faithfully witnessing to Jesus, their assurance is that God will intervene and harvest them, rescue them from that pressure, rescue them from that trial. This is a harvest that means death. Blessed are those who die in the Lord from now on. The saints saints who are being harvested are dying. If you were looking at the events that are being described at the end of chapter 14 on earth, what you would see is a bunch of saints going to the stake, burning at the stake, or being fed to wild animals, or being tortured in some gruesome way until they die. That's what you would see. Revelation gives us a heavenly vision of what it means to be a martyr. It's not what it looks like on earth. What's happening, in fact, is that Jesus, the Son of Man, is coming sitting on a cloud to gather in His saints, 
to gather us up so that we can be, the saints, the martyrs, can be above the firmament, joining in the heavenly choir, learning the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb, holding harps in their hand and joining with the angelic choir of heaven. That's what happens when martyrs die. That's what happens in heaven. What it, looks, what it looks like on earth is not the same thing as what's happening in heaven. What's happening in heaven is that Jesus is harvesting, gathering in His saints, and bringing them into everlasting joy, into the everlasting liturgy. This is why there's a blessing on those who die in the Lord. Those who die in the Lord, the 144,000 in the immediate context, the 144,000 who die in the Lord are being rescued from that pressure and persecution. They're blessed because they are being taken to heaven. They have rest from their labors. But I think they're also being blessed in the original sense of blessing. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And the saints who are rescued, the saints who are martyred and, and harvested are blessed in that sense too. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. The harvest of the saints is not... It's an end in one sense. It's the beginning in another because the harvest of saints is also a planting. And as the saints shed their blood in faith, faithfully and as they're rescued from this world, their witness stays here and continues to have its effect. Their witness is a seed that goes into the ground and dies and then bears much fruit. That's the perseverance that's being talked about in this passage. But that seems quite remote from us. How does this apply to us? I think it applies at least in this sense. All of us will be harvested. We may not be harvested in martyrdom, but we're all going to be harvested at some time or another. The Son of Man comes to harvest the saints, the 144,000, when they become ripe. When the grain is ripe, He comes to harvest the grain. When the grapes are ripe, then the angel is sent out to harvest the grapes. The Son of Man comes, the Lord harvests His people at the right time. When harvest time comes. When harvest time comes for each of us. That gives us some assurance when we see people cut off in the midst of life. When we know of young children who die. Who never seem to even begin to grow, much less to begin to bear fruit. And we have to trust that the Son of Man knows what He's doing. The Son of Man knows when it's time to harvest and gather in His saints. That He knows that He's bringing them in when they're right. Here at Trinity, we've been praying for Caleb Handy, Jacob's brother, who has what appears now to be an incurable cancer. And as we continue to pray for a miracle beyond any kind of medical help, he's beyond medical help at this point, but as we continue to pray for a miracle, we also need to be assured that those who die in the Lord are blessed and that the Son of Man knows the time of harvest. He knows when to harvest each of us, when we're ripe, when we've done our work, and that our deaths can still be fruitful. We can continue to be vital and fruitful even after death, not just while we're living. And I think it applies to all of us also in this sense. We should pay attention to how the saints who are being harvested are described here at the end of the chapter. It's not just a harvest, but it's specifically a harvest of grain and then a harvest of grapes. <coughs> a harvest of bread 
and then a harvest of wine. The 144,000 who are being harvested here are the bread and wine, the grain and grapes people that are being harvested out of the earth. They are the Eucharistic people. And the logic behind this, I think, is the biblical logic that you are what you eat. You eat bread. You eat wine at this table every week. And eating bread and drinking wine, you become bread and wine. You eat the bread of life. And you become a communicator of life to those around you. You drink the wine of joy. And you become a means of joy. Overflowing with joy to those who are around you. We eat and drink Eucharist, Thanksgiving. And we become a Eucharistic Thanksgiving people. We eat and drink Christ. And in eating and drinking Christ, we are becoming more and more like Christ so that we can be Christ-like to our neighbors, Christ-like to those around us, Christ-like to our brothers and sisters in the church. We eat bread that's broken. We drink wine that is poured out. And in eating and drinking, we're proclaiming the Lord's death until He comes. Every week you're at this table eating and drinking the body and blood of the first and greatest of the Christian martyrs, the true and faithful witness, Jesus Christ. And you are what you eat. You're eating martyr bread and martyr wine, Jesus' body and blood, so that you can become martyrs, faithful witnesses, wherever you are, at work, in your home, at school, among your friends, Wherever you are, eating and drinking at this table is forming you into a faithful martyr, ready to be a living sacrifice, and ready to be, when harvest time comes, a dying sacrifice. Let's pray together. Almighty God, our Father, we thank You for the Lord Jesus Christ, that He is the Lamb of God who offered Himself for the life of the world. We thank You that He is the Son of Man, who knows the time of harvest and harvests His saints at the right time. We thank You that because of Jesus, those who die in the Lord are blessed. And we can be fruitful. And we can multiply. We can be seeds sown, even in our deaths. We pray that by this, by Your grace, we would become such a people. They would trust in You. They would find our perseverance and encouragement in You, who are the judge of the earth, and in your promise that you will harvest when the earth is ripe. We pray this for the sake of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.